facility on the third floor of the new building. Uh, it would only be about uh, a third of this space. And there would be a movable petition, an eight-foot petition, that would separate our room from the escalator. You hear everybody coming up, and there's just no other option. He said, eventually, they are going to put the skywalk across again. We don't know when that will be. That may be two years down the line. But, uh, so anyway, right now, you know, you'll be able to park in this building, come right up to Sunday School, and the distance between our building and the sanctuary is closer than any other facility on the church property. So uh, this is really the only option we have. Okay, so let's take Matthew 17, and today we're going to come to the transfiguration. The transfiguration of Jesus. Last week we ended with chapter 16 and verse 28, which said, Assuredly, I say to you, there were some standing here who shall not taste death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And the transfiguration is a foreshadowing or a foretaste of what that kingdom is going to be like. So when you see uh, this event, when we read about this event, just think about the kingdom in the future, and you're going to sort of see what it's going to be like. Now, first of all, I want you to notice uh, the setting of the transfiguration. Look at when it happens. Look at verse 1. Now, after six days. Uh, after six days from what? From Peter's confession that thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. In Luke's version, he says... Nearly eight days passed. <laughs> Here it says after six days. So you know what day it was? It was the seventh day. Uh, one week after Peter's confession, the transfiguration takes place. That's the wind. Look at the who in verse 1. Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother. That's the inner circle. Those that are closest to Jesus. Notice the where of the transfiguration. He led them up to a high mountain by themselves. Most likely this is Mount Hermon, which is a snow-capped mountain that reaches nearly two miles into the sky. It can be seen a hundred miles away. I'm sure he didn't take them up to the top. It's probably on the slope of the mountain. He just needed to get away. And so that's the location. This is in Galilee. Okay, so this is he's still up north. He hasn't started moving south. Yeah. Matthew doesn't tell us the why of the transfiguration. In other words, why does he go to the mountain? But Luke does, and Luke says this. Jesus goes to the mountain with his three disciples to pray. And it's interesting that Luke also says the disciples fall asleep. Remember when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, they fell asleep. It tells us that the transfiguration takes place at night. We always think of the transfiguration taking place today. But it's really a night scene. And uh, he starts to pray. They fall asleep. So uh, that's just something that's a little interesting that Matthew doesn't really tell us. Now let's look at the what. What happens? Look at verse 2. And he was transfigured before them. His face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as snow. Uh, Jesus' appearance changes. And his clothes and his face begin to shine. There's a radiance. Uh, he looks like some dazzling figure in front of them. Now, remember, if this is a night scene, you can see how this would really 
But it's such a contrast that would just grab your attention. So he becomes sort of translucent. Everything just begins to shine so brightly. Now there are two words that you need to, to know, okay? And I want you to remember these two words. Okay? The word transformed comes from the Greek word metamorphosis. You ever heard of metamorphosis? It means uh, that which is on the inside comes out. There's a bursting forth of his glory. The glory that's been hidden behind the veil of his flesh for 30 years suddenly burst forth. It's like uh, a caterpillar where the uh, butterfly comes out of the cocoon. What's on the inside burst forth. And so God, Christ's glory comes forth and it just dazzles and shines and it covers his entire being. So that's the first word you need to know. And that's the word metamorphosis, which is that which is on the inside comes out. Now there's another word you need to know. And that word is metaschematizo. Uh, metaschematizo. Okay? Meta, that's a pretty easy word. Scheme, that's a pretty easy word. Okay? Matizo. Now, you see the word scheme in there. Like he's scheming. Right? Meta schematizo means to cover up what's really on the inside. It means to masquerade, to put on a mask. You cover up so you don't want people to really see what you're like. That's what the Pharisees did, wasn't it? They always, oh, they were smiling and saying nice little things, but on the inside they were really evil, so they were always covering up. So that's what that word means. And I'm going to show you how it's used in the scriptures. And I want you to turn over to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And when you get there, look down at verse 3. 2 Corinthians 11, 3. If I can find it in my Bible. Okay. Now, when you get there, this is talking about how Eve was deceived. And it says this. 2 Corinthians 11.3 But I fear lest somehow, as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, so your minds may be corrupted from the simplicity, simplicity that is in Christ. For if he who preaches another Jesus and we have not preached. Or if you receive a different spirit that you have not received, or a different gospel which you have not accepted, you may well put up with it. For I consider that I am not at all inferior to most of the apostles. And then he goes on and he says, in verse 14, look what he says in verse 14. In verse 13 he says, For such are false apostles, deceitful workers, watch this, transforming themselves into apostles of Christ. Look, these are false apostles, false deceitful workers, but look what they do. They put on a false face. That's metaschematizo. Transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no 
great thing if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end is according to their work. So now what we have here is we have Satan's ministers, and there are false prophets out there, false pastors, false evangelists. They're in there, false healers. You know who they are. I don't have to tell you who they are. And they pass themselves off as apostles of Christ. But deep down inside, they are devils. But they put on that masquerade, and guess what? Many people are fooled by them. Jesus does just the opposite. What is on the inside burst forth, and you get to see what you really like. And so that's what this transfiguration is all about. So when you look at that, you see what happens back in Matthew 17. He's transfigured before them. His face shines like the sun. His clothes become white as light. And then verse 3, look what else happens. And behold, Moses and Elijah appeared to them, talking with him. So now we have a summit conference between Jesus, Moses, and Elijah. Moses, who represents the law. Elijah, who represents the prophets. These are men who both had miracle ministries in the Old Testament. Not everybody that was a minister of God performed miracles in the Old Testament. But there were certain eras, uh, certain times where God performed great miracles through people. And one was through Moses, and another era was through Elijah. Uh, both of these men had mountaintop experiences. Moses encounters God on Mount Sinai when God gives him the law. And Elijah encounters God on a mountain. And you know that passage when he says, I saw him in the wind and he was not there. I saw him in the fire and he was not there. I saw him in the earthquake. And then he came to me in a still, still small voice. And so Elijah meets God on a mountain. So they both have mountaintop experiences. And uh, these are both forerunners of the Messiah. Moses is a forerunner of the Messiah. The law proceeds. The Messiah is coming. And Elijah is a forerunner of Messiah. Now, it says they appeared. You notice that? They just appeared to the disciples. And they heard these guys talking to them. I believe this is a vision. This part of the transfiguration is a vision right here. And I think I can prove it. Okay? I don't think Moses and Elijah really just came there. But he, they appeared to these guys as being with Jesus. Because how in the world would Peter, James, and John know Moses and Elijah? They have name tags on like we do for the president's class. I'm, hello, I'm Moses. They could take photographs. They didn't know what Moses and Elijah looked like. You said they came up and introduced themselves. Hi, I'm Peter. I'm, I'm Moses. Oh, nice to meet you. Moses had been dead for thousands of years. Or was it that Moses looked like Charlton Heston? Uh, and Peter, oh, I know who you are. I saw the movie. <laughs> I think this part is is a vision, okay? And I'll show you why in a moment. But just let that sort of hang in your mind for a second. So what we have is this appearance of Moses and Elijah, and they were talking to Jesus. Now Peter speaks up. So you ready for some pearls of wisdom? 
Whenever it says Peter speaks like you know what you're getting. I love it. Look what he says. Verse 4. Peter answered and he said, Lord, it's good for us to be here. That's pretty great, isn't it? And to top it off, he says, it's good for us to be here. If you wish, let us make three tabernacles. One for you. This is a great sentence. One for Moses. And one for Elijah. Hey, I got a great idea. Let me make three houses for you. Let me pitch three tents for you. Now, he's just said a week earlier that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And now he's putting Jesus on par with these other two guys. Now, we don't know why he wants to build a tent or a tabernacle or a house. Some people said, some of the commentaries said he wants to capture the glory of Moses and Elijah. But the text doesn't say that they're shining, does it? Doesn't say that their their glory is coming forth, so I'm not sure that that's what he's trying to do. Some say, well, maybe this is the feast of tabernacles, and Jews would always build little tabernacles in their backyard to celebrate uh, Israel's wandering in the wilderness, where they had to live in tents. Now, there's no indication that this is the feast of tabernacles thing. Uh, one commentary said Peter wants to. Wants us to prolong this experience. He figures if he can get him living in a house, a little tabernacle, a dwelling place, he can prolong this experience. Uh, but we don't know why he says that. The bottom line is we don't know why. All we know is this. It's the most absurd idea that you've ever heard in your life. <laughs> and of course it is because it's coming from Peter. That makes sense. So then it says, while he was still speaking, I love this. Look at this. While he was still speaking, right in mid-sentence, while he was right in the middle of his great mind-boggling suggestion, look at this, in mid-sentence, verse 5, behold, a cloud overshadowed them. And uh, suddenly this cloud descends, and uh, it envelops the disciples, it blackens out the dazzling rays coming from Jesus' face and his clothes. And uh, there is literally zero visibility. They can't even see uh, their hands in front of their face. So, we know from the Old Testament that a cloud represents God's presence. A cloud led Israel by day, remember that? And when they dedicated the tabernacle, Solomon's day, the cloud came down, God's presence came down, filled the the temple, rather, and uh, they all fell on the ground and they were fearful. So God stops Peter in mid-sentence and this cloud comes down and it is pitch black. You can't even see the glory coming from Jesus. And suddenly, in verse 5, it says, a voice came out of the cloud saying, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased hear him. So just get this picture. Peter says, hey, I got this great idea. Let's build three houses. And then suddenly, right in mid-sentence, there's this darkness just descends like this fog comes right down. Total blackness. He can't see anything. And then there's this voice that's like in surround sound. You can't see where it's coming from. And the voice says, this is my beloved son. Hear him. Well, he knows who that voice is. That's the voice of God. The same thing God said in Jesus' baptism. He says here, the same thing that Peter said a week earlier, thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. God now confirms it to Peter. 
said, what are you talking about three tabernacles for Moses and Elijah? And this is my beloved son. And then he adds this. Hear him. Heed his voice. Obey what he has to say to you. So, the apostles, when they hear this, they can't see anything. It has to be the most frightening thing. It says in verse 6, when they heard this, they fell on their faces and were greatly afraid. I bet they were. I mean, this is a very scary situation. But Jesus came, still in the dark, can't see anything, and he touched them. That must have been spooky, because they don't know it's Jesus. Suddenly a hand just touches the shoulder. And then he says, Arise, and do not be afraid. These guys are shaking in their boots. They're like leaves shaking in the wind. And now he touches them, and he says, Arise, have no fear. Same thing he says to John on the Isle of Patmos, when John's having his vision. Remember that? And he falls down like a dead man. So, uh, they can't see Jesus. The fog's still there. All they can do is hear his voice and they can feel his touch. I don't know if their eyes are closed, but even if they were open, I don't think they could see. But they do feel his hand on their shoulders. Because then it says, when they lifted up their eyes, it shows they weren't looking. When they lifted up their eyes, verse 8, they saw no one but Jesus only. And everything just clears off, the fog clears, lifts, and when they look up, all they see is Jesus only. And now they're back to reality. Just as they went up a mountain with Jesus, now there's just Jesus. The vision disappears. You say, vision? Why do you get all that nonsense? Look at verse 9. Now they came down, as they came down from the mountain, Jesus commanded them, saying, Tell what? The vision. The vision. Tell the vision to no one until the Son of Man is risen from the dead. Keep quiet about this thing. Now, what did God just tell them to do? Hear Jesus. Heed Jesus. Do what Jesus says. Obey Jesus. What has Jesus just told them to do? Keep your mouth shut. Don't tell anybody about this vision until I'm raised from the dead. And they do obey Jesus. But once he's raised from the dead, they tell everybody. John says at the beginning of his gospel, in the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, the Word was God, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld his glory as the only begotten of the Son. Of the Father. So we've seen that John said that. Uh, let me show you what Peter says. Uh, turn over to Second Peter, for example. This is very interesting. Uh, so John talks about the vision after Jesus is raised. Look at Second Peter chapter 1. Second Peter chapter 1. I like the way Peter says this. He's writing to a, a group of people who are scattered throughout the region. And in verse 16 he says this. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 16. He said, We did not follow cunningly devised fables 
when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Watch this. But we were eyewitnesses of His majesty, for He received from the Father honor and glory when, watch, when a voice came to Him from the excellent glory saying, This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when? When we were with Him on the mountain. So Peter tells about it, but it's only after the fact. So two of the three apostles who were with him write about it. Why didn't James write about it? James is put to death in Acts 12. He didn't have time to write anything. Or I think he would have written about it. So this is an event that uh, just amazes them. Now, what's the practical application of all of this? Remember, I told you to remember two words. The metamorphous word, changed inside out, and the metaschematizo word, which means to put on a false face. Remember that? Metamorphous is used only three times in the New Testament. Once right here in our passage, in Matthew 17. The other time, it's used in Romans 12. And here's what it says. You don't have to look. Be ye not conformed to this world. Meta scheme matiza. Don't put on a mask like you belong to this world. That's not your real nature. But be what? Transformed metamorphous. Allow what is on the inside, the real you, to come out. Both words are used right there. How do you, how are you meta, how, how do you metamorphosis? How is there a metamorphosis in your life? Look, be not conformed to this world. Don't put on a mask. Don't act like the Pharisee. That's not the real you. But be transformed from the inside out by the renewing, what? Of your mind. And so it's when we're, our minds are renewed, guess what? We are being changed. We are being transformed. The word metamorphosis is used one other time in the scriptures. I want to show this to you, if you don't mind. 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 3. <clears throat> and when you get there, go down to verse 14. Let's just watch how this word sort of jumps off the page. 2 Corinthians chapter 3 and verse 14. Now he's talking about the Old Testament saints. Okay, watch this. But their minds, this is 2 Corinthians 3.14, but their minds were blinded. For until this day, the same veil remains unlifted in the reading of the Old Testament because the veil is taken away in Christ. But even to this day, when Moses is read, when in the synagogues, when Moses is read, a veil lies on their heart. Nevertheless, when one turns to the Lord, what happens? The veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. And we are all with unveiled face, Beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord. Look at this. We are being 
transformed. There's the metamorphosis word. We are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Now here he says something. He says there are two components in this transformation, this metamorphosis taking place in our lives. First of all, he says we look into a mirror. We know from another passage that this mirror is the Word of God. And it's through the Spirit. The Spirit and the mirror of the Word of God is what brings about this transformation. This is how our minds are renewed. So when we are in the Word and we are allowing the Spirit to work in our lives, we are being changed from glory to glory. What's on the inside shines forth. Not to the extent that it did with Jesus, where it was a total transfiguration. But guess what? What is on the inside is coming out of you every day. You do not realize it. You look in the mirror every day, you look like the same person. But I want you to know that lost people realize there's something different about you. You might not realize they, they realize it, but they do. You'll meet somebody that you knew in school. You're a different person. What's happening to you? Versus, hey, same old guy. <laughs> what? Why are you different? Why do they see something different? Because you're being transformed day by day. I remember when I was a lost person and I would meet Christians, I knew there was something different about them. I couldn't put my finger on it, but I knew when there was a genuine Christian in my midst because they were different. They were being transformed. A metamorphosis was taking place. So Warren Wearsby puts it this way. A child of God looks into the Word of God and sees the Son of God and is changed by the Spirit of God into the image of God. We go from glory to glory to glory until that day that we like Jesus will be completely changed. And we'll see him like he is. And what's the scripture say? And we will be So, this is what the, the, the apostles take this transfiguration and notice how they use it throughout the epistles to say, hey, this should be our experience. No, we're not being transfigured all at once, but every day we're changing more and more and more into the image of Christ. We'll pick up at that next verse. Next week. Lord, we thank you that, uh, that we're not all that we are going to be. We are different than we used to be. Help us to realize the importance of having our minds renewed. Help us to realize the importance of being in your word and allowing the spirit of the living Christ transform us. Lord, this is what you want. You want us to be conformed into your image. So, Lord, may people see us. When we, when we put on the airs, Lord, and when we put on those false faces, and when we're around our lost friends and we try to act like them, uh, that's not the real us. We're, we're, we're putting on a mask. Help us, Lord, to rip that mask off and, and to be genuine believers in Christ so that people... May see the Spirit of Christ shine through us. In His name we pray. Amen.